going to continue our Bible study on the, the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Romans, and this is, my, in my estimation, the greatest letter ever written. It is a, about 60% of all gospel doctrines, biblical doctrines, and it's about 85% of how God saves sinners and why he saves us. And we've gone through the introduction, and we've gone into the first area of teaching, which is uh, verses uh, 16 and 17 about that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. And now the first major doctrine that Paul is going to teach us about is the wrath of God. That's, that's fascinating since in our day, teaching about the wrath of God is almost unheard of. And it's a forgotten doctrine, but Paul thought it so important that he brought it out almost immediately as soon as he got through talking about the gospel itself. So we're going to be looking at Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. And actually, I'm only taking a portion of, of this. you got to remember that the way we have books today and chapters and and in the Bible we have verse numbering, that wasn't originally how it was. It was written on scrolls, and they just got leather uh, things, and they tied scrolls together, and they just kept going with them, or they had multiple scrolls. And so uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 18, is one basic thought that Paul has. And I'm going to break it up into different sections so we don't get lost in it. But, but Paul was very interested in making sure that we understood what the wrath of God was and why God has wrath and, and what this is all about. And so let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you and we give you glory. And we know, God, that there is belief and there is disbelief and unbelief and then there's confusion where there are people who are confused about what to believe. And Lord, there's only one solution for the confusion and that is truth being injected into the into the mind and the heart of the individual. And so, Lord, we want to study your word rightly and fully. And Lord, I ask you to guard my tongue as I teach this, that I will not speak error and I will not deceive anybody, that I myself will not be deceived and that I will not deceive anyone else. And that these that you have gathered here in the church this morning and those who are watching by means of the internet and those who will watch this at some later time, that you will give them eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. I pray that the Holy Spirit of the living God will defeat all unbelief and it will defeat all confusion. And Lord, allow the, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, to shine into us, Lord, that we may be redeemed and we may be strengthened with all might in the inner man. I pray, God, you move in this service today, God. I, in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. So now that we want to read the passage, Romans 1, 18 through 32. Sister Charlotte, if you would read that, please, ma'am. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, this is a this is an area that the the visible church nine hundred years ago wrestled with. The verse nineteen uh, verse twenty says, "For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes." And then he gives you two of them, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made, through what has been made. So the observation of the created universe will let somebody, anybody understand God's eternal power and divine nature. And he did this for one reason, so that they are without excuse, so that that God can hold them accountable as to why they're not saved. Now, um, early on in the church's existence, there was a man named Augustine or Augustine who developed the bulk of the theology that the church embraced, especially that about justification by faith alone. And as time went on, another guy rose up named Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, and he, he came about 1200, 1300 and Augustine was in the fours and four and five hundreds. And so the visible church at that time abandoned Augustinian teaching and embraced Aquinian theology. And Aquinian theology had to do with natural law, that you can sit by a river and watch the river and the birds and the trees and get saved, that sooner or later your, your understanding will become real about God and different things. And they based it on verse 20. Well, verse 20 is very limited. There's only two things you learn from the created universe, and that is God's eternal power and divine nature. You don't know how to, how to be saved. You don't know anything about Jesus Christ or the cross or the gospel. And so God has chosen the foolishness of the message preached to save them that believe. And so the gospel must be preached in all the world. So Aquinas was wrong, and that when they abandoned Augustinian teaching, the Reformation came in the in the 16th century. The Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, did not create any new doctrines. All it did was return the church back to uh, to uh, Aquinian teaching, as opposed to uh, uh, I mean Augustinian teaching, as opposed to Aquinian theology. And so, about salvation primarily, about salvation, there are elements of of Aquinian theology that's great. So, I mean, you know, broke clock is right twice a day. So Hitler loved puppies. I mean, so nobody's all bad. But but Aquinas was wrong about how lost people get saved, which is a pretty serious subject. And so what the reformers did in the 16th century was return the church back to its roots. And that's that's important to understand because Augustine didn't teach anything that the Apostle Paul didn't teach. And the Apostle Paul didn't teach anything that Jesus didn't teach. And Jesus didn't teach anything that Moses didn't teach. And so it's all seamless. There's not two different religions. And the Protestant Protestantism that we have today is not a different religion from Catholicism. Catholicism is off base. It's wrong. It's not biblical. Protestant, supposedly, is the true exposition of Scripture why we're called Protestants. We have a protest against the false teachings of Rome. So uh, in verse 20, 
we, we, we know that God allowed men to understand two things about God, his eternal power and divine nature. And he says here, it's been clearly seen having been being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So there is nobody that has an excuse as to why they don't know God. If they know God is divine and they know he's powerful, then why don't they repent? Why don't they trust? Why don't they come to him for mercy? And so there is no excuse. So I'm sorry I interrupt you, but I wanted to give that background into why Paul wrote verse 20. Keep going with 21 then. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was dark. Now what does that mean? They became futile in their speculations. Right. What is futility? Empty. Empty, unworkable, useless. Right. So their speculations became useless. Their speculations became silly. And so they're pondering about God and they're trying to, to do anything except read the Bible and anything except observe the created universe and try to figure out about God because it said they knew God, but they did not honor him as God. So it's not enough to know God. It's not enough to believe in God, in this generic God. And it's because people don't understand this as to why they'll say, well, Muslims believe in God. His name is Allah. They just call him Allah and we call him God. You know, what's the big deal? Because it's, it's not enough to know God. You have to honor him as God. And the way you honor God as God is by believing what God said. It's like in the Old Testament in Judges, every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's right. That's and right. That's futile. That's futile. And so when we, but they had speculations. In other words, they didn't stop thinking about this because they were wrong. This is something that Christians sometimes lose sight of. We have the Bible. We, we, supposedly what we, the reason we have the Bible is so that all of our thinking, all of our doing, all of our believing comes from the Bible and from the Bible alone. They don't have the Bible. They don't believe the Bible is the word of God. And yet they still think they're not, they didn't stop pondering. They didn't stop trying to answer questions. And this is where you get sociology and psychiatry and psychology and all of these science, supposed sciences that try to figure out why do people do bad things when they know it's suicide? After 6,000 years of observation, why do young girls still fall for the lie that young men tell them and give up their virginity and have illegitimate children. You'd think by now we'd get it down to where we realize that men will do anything in order to procreate. They'll say anything. They'll, they'll go to church even so they can find a, a girl. I mean, they'll do anything. And yet girls fall for this today just as much as they did 6,000 years ago. And so there's a statement, and it's kind of funny, and it says history teaches us that nobody learns anything from history. And, and, and so what we, what we need to try to do is every single generation of people in the church need to be taught the fundamentals of the faith. If you don't, you lose sight of it. And sooner or later, a child will wake up and say, why are you doing what you're doing? And the, 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 the father or the mother will say, I don't know, we just always have done it this way. And this is what, like, you go to, and I'm not throwing rocks at anybody. I'm just going to give you an example of what I'm talking about. Rhonda and I went on vacation up into the Smoky Mountains, and there was a big old group of, of Amish 
uh, up there with their hats, straw hats and their beards and their everybody's dressed the same. All the girls have head coverings and they wear dresses. And they and 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 so I walked up to the oldest guy I could find and I said, "Can I talk to you?" He said, "Sure." I said, "Why do you do what you do?" He said, "I don't know. We just have always done it." So he didn't know what he believed or why he believed it. See, that's what the tragedy is. But you go to people in church today, why are you why do you believe that? I don't know, we just always have. Well, what does that mean when you say you have to trust Jesus by faith alone? What does that mean? I don't know. It just you you, you just got to do it. And and they have these vague general answers because they don't understand themselves. They're raised up in this thing called church and they it's all around them. I'm not faulting anybody in particular that they didn't do that Maybe they did something wrong. I'm not saying anybody did anything wrong, but it's not getting in. And as a result, you've got, a, you've got generations of people now that have no idea what they believe or why they believe it. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing in this church. Because if you don't know what you believe and why you believe it in this church, it's your fault. Because I'm giving you enough information for you to know. I'm inviting you to ask questions. I'm begging you to to get involved in these things. And so if you don't understand, it's your fault because I'm available 24-7 practically to answer questions or to, to lead you through the scriptures. And so if you don't ask the question, I can't answer it because I don't know what's going on. And by, by extension on that statement, I want to revive the Q&A on the days that we, the Sundays that we have dinner on the grounds because I want to know where you are in your in your walk with God and what you're struggling with, what you're not understanding, where you're the verses of the Bible that are confusing to you and things of that nature. So I want to do that again. So so even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. What do we call some of the futile speculations of lost people out in the world that didn't use the Bible and didn't try to understand the truth? What do we call today their futile speculations? There's a name for it. It's called false doctrine, false teaching. That's where it came from. People trying to put two and two together in their own mind using their own human logic without the Bible, and they come up with these things. This is why people do not like the wrath of God today. They've taken one little part of God, which is love, and they've centered on that, and, and they've defi redefined love as being that God will never tell me anything that will make me unhappy. And that's the God they've created in their own mind. And that God doesn't exist. That's a false God. And so futile speculations about God is called false teaching. All right, keep going. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So verse 23, they exchanged. They made an exchange. They made a swap. And in this, in verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man in the form of birds and four-footed. So they, they had totem poles and they had... Uh, idols that they worship. Today, we don't build totem poles. We build businesses. We build uh, 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 empires. We have money. We have possessions. Those are our idols today. Maybe even people are our idols. So we exchanged 
the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. And then verse 26, uh, verse 25, they made another exchange. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So they're busy. They're not just standing there being lost. That's, that's the thing you got to understand. They're saved people and lost people. And we're moving on. We're going deeper into God's word. And it's affecting the way we live and the way we, we raise our children and the way we make our money and the way we vote and the way we do all these other things. Well, they're not standing still either. They're progressing in their, in their, in their lost condition and their false doctrines. And they're progressing in there until the, the time will come when they'll totally make an exchange away from God and into idols and away from the truth into a lie. And this is the progression of deception. And so we're on a path that's getting further. The longer it takes, it's we're getting further and further and further apart. You may have noticed that as you begin to walk with God, as you begin to apply the truth of Scripture into your daily life, you have fewer people that associate with you. And you're just as sweet and nice as you can be, and it's got nothing to do with it. They don't like your God, and they don't like how you live your life because you make them feel convicted. They feel bad being around you. I was at my 50th year reunion several months ago, back in, what was it, May, and this guy walked up to me and said, Blair, you intimidate people. And I said, how, how am I intimidating? He said, because you're like, you're like a prophet coming down from the mountain and we're scared of you. And you say things and they're so right and they're so good and we don't know how to deal with it. So we smile at you and wave at you. He said, I'm just telling you the truth, but we don't want to be around you too much because you're going to expose our sin. And, and I'm sitting there trying to hug everybody that I hadn't seen in 50 years and they're trying to stay away from me. It's really interesting. And, and, and that's the way it ought to be. It's because sooner or later, some of those people will say, show me your God. And they'll want what we have. And we have to be ready to give a, a reason as to the hope that lies within us. Keep going. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Okay, now, now verse 26, for this reason God gave them over. Back at verse uh, uh, 24, God gave them over. And then in verse 28, God gave them over. There's three times in this passage that it uses that phrase, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over. And in the original Greek, what this means is God quit dealing with them. He, he let them do whatever they want to do. He doesn't convict them. He doesn't tell them they're wrong. He doesn't draw them to, to himself for salvation. Now, they're still going to be judged but see, we, the only reason we're convicted is because God allows us to be convicted. Conviction has to be granted or given to people. You say, well, just follow your conscience. Well, your conscience is only as good as what you've been feeding on. So if you've been listening to Hare Krishna nonsense, you're going to have a certain degree of, 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 of your, your conscience is going to be geared in a certain direction. If you've been fooling around with the Bhagavad Gita, 
and you're in Hinduism or Buddhism, your conscience is only going to be as good as that is. And if you're fooling around with Judaism or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or, or Islam, your conscience is going to be geared toward that. So your conscience is not trustworthy unless it's been feeding on the scriptures, which is the truth. So to make, to make it, to be safe, you need to go by the scriptures. I can't depend on myself. I may be in error. I may be wrong about some things. So the Bible will tell me whether I'm in error or not. But, okay, you're talking about all these different faiths or beliefs or ideologies. Your sermon last Sunday, and I've heard more people speak about your sermon last Sunday than any sermon that I've been involved with. Okay, those people thought they were right. They were in the Word. They Amen. knew the Word, and Amen. they were looking for Jesus, but they missed him. That's right. And it has caused me this week to spend time Yay, Lord. in God's Word, Yay, to Lord. spend time in prayer, because I do not want to hear, depart Amen. from me, Amen to I that. never knew you. Amen to that. Because we're here, we're, and we're responsible for everything that we've been given. So it doesn't even have to be something out in the world. Uh-uh. It can be because we see what happened to the Pharisees that knew more scripture than anybody at any time. Right. So thank the Lord that he is still convicting us. Amen. Thank the Lord that he's using you to preach his word, not your word, but his word. One of the characteristics of being lost, if you remember, what was the first thing that Adam and Eve did right after they ate the fruit, knew their eyes were open and they knew they had sinned, what's the first thing that happened to them? They sewed leaves together. They knew they were naked. Okay. Now, before the fall, nakedness was appropriate. Clothing was inappropriate. Since the fall, nakedness is inappropriate. Clothing is appropriate. Because us wearing clothes signifies our shame. See, when, when we talk now about people's nakedness, they say, well, that's revealing their shame. Okay? Now, so we cover up our shame by wearing clothes. That's what that signifies. And it's universal throughout the world. So, so when Jesus was crucified, he didn't have a loincloth on. They did that for modesty purposes, the people that painted portraits and made statues. He was naked. That's how they crucified people. They beat him, beat him, and beat him, and beat him, and beat him till they got tired of beating him. And then they hung him up on the cross. It was awful. It was horrendous. And he screamed. And and Bill O'Reilly wrote a book about the crucifixion and talked about how impossible it was while your arms are extended and your diaphragm is up. It's impossible to, to be loud. You just have whispers. And Brother Vernon's had trouble with his diaphragm, and he struggles with breath, and he struggles with being loud. Okay, so there's ev- there's scientific evidence to back that up. However, the Bible says clearly, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Okay, so he was supernatural in that aspect, and he overrode the science of, of all of this, the anatomy and everything else. And he was saying, you know, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because for the first time in all of creation, God departed from Jesus. 
because God had made him to be sin for us. And that bothered Jesus more than death. He wasn't afraid to die. People say, well, he's praying because he's scared. No, he wasn't. He knew where he'd come from. He knew where he's going. He had that knowledge. We don't. We have faith that where we're going. We, he had knowledge. He was there. But he, he, he couldn't handle that God departed from him. That's what he was upset about because he had been made sin and he screamed in agony. It wasn't the pain of the nails. It was the pain of the wrath of God being poured out upon him in judgment. God, the, Isaiah 53 verse 10, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Now, either God is sadistic and loves to crush his own son, which is not true, or the crushing of Jesus was what brought God pleasure in the sense that it brought forth the greater good of the glory of God in, in sa saving unworthy sinners by what God alone does for them. But the point I'm making is that is that when, when, when we are walking through life and all of a sudden we get convicted, we may not even understand the conviction. And we go to the Bible and the Bible says, have no other gods before me. And we, we look at our shelf and we didn't think nothing about it. There's a, a Buddha sitting on our, our bookshelf over there. Well, that's an idol. So get rid of the idols. But we have to go even deeper because maybe my, my stamp collection is an idol. Maybe my, so it's not going to be so obvious as a statue is my point. It's not always as, as obvious. But we, we start cleaning up on ourselves and we start cleaning up the way we live. We don't want our homes to hold idols any more than we want our heart or our mind to hold idols. And so our, our hearts now are idol factories. We turn out new and, new and, 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 and ingenious idols every day. And we have to be on guard about that because God said, have no other gods before me. So whatever you put before God is a God it to you. A, it could be a hidden idol. It could be a hidden idol. Like That's right. grandkid. So therefore, I need your prayers. You need my prayers. Brother Jody, please pray for me that I will see the idols that's in my life. It could be I want the praise of men because I'm in ministry. It, it, it could be that I wish that some big church in Panama City, Florida would call me that's got 3,000 members and wants me to be their pastor where I can make $275,000 a year being a pastor. It, it could be that. It could be there's, there's idols in ministry. There's idols in every, everybody's life. So you have to be on guard. You have to watch what, what attracts me, what brings me joy, what satisfies me. And if it's not God, it's an idol reverse it what worries me the most am i do i do i spend sleepless nights worried about a quarter of a move of the stock market if so then my investments are my idol because i'm not worried about sinning against god evidently i'm just worried about my money you see what i'm saying and so what what causes you concern is that you might have sinned against god or that people might not like you so you're going to cater your ministry to the praise of men rather than the glory of God. So, so you, you've got to examine yourself, but there's a point. So God convicts us. God convicts us. I don't know, 30 times a day. So when you, when we talk about the intercession of Jesus, Jesus is not telling God, don't kill them, God. They didn't mean it because we meant it. 
when we sin. He's not saying they're not really that guilty. That's not the answer. The intercession is if you kill them because God's ready to slay us because of our sin, and Jesus intercedes, he stands between the dead and the living, and he tells his father, if you kill them, you're telling the world that my sacrifice wasn't enough. So it's God's love for Jesus and Jesus' love for the Father that saves us. It's not God's love for us. He does love us, but not like he loves Jesus. It's not even the same universe. And that makes us safe. Because if he loved me, I'd do something sooner or later that he wouldn't love. Right? And so the example in the Old Testament is Moses. Moses said, you know, you can make a, I can make a greater nation out of you. And Moses said, if you kill them, and they're guilty. It's not that they're not guilty. They are. They're, they're worshiping a golden calf at that moment. He said, if you kill them, the nations of the world won't respect you. Because you called them. They're your people. So you're not strong enough to keep them. Wow. So that's the integrity of God is what keeps us saved. You say, well, I'm holding on. That's how come I'm saved. You, you're not holding on tight enough. He is holding on to you. That's why you're safe. Now, that doesn't alleviate your need to hold on. But in spite of all the holding you're doing, it's not good enough without him holding you. So we have to be convicted. And what happens in when God turned them over, he quits convicting people. And he lets them do whatever is in their heart to do, whatever sin, whatever wickedness they want. And God doesn't deal with them anymore. Now, why would he do it? Because he's going to damn them. He doesn't want to forgive them, and he doesn't want to save them. Now, that sounds terrible. That sounds horrible. I didn't write this. That's what this says. And I believe the Bible's the word of God. And so it says, look what it says. Verse 23, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. Okay, that's what they did. Okay, now watch what God did. Verse 24, therefore. What does therefore mean? Because that's true. Now look what God did. How did God respond? God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So when you see sexual immorality rise and become prevalent and become normalized and become attractive and become preferred, that is the judgment of abandonment. That's when God has given them over. So what we need to be concerned about is not the defense budget. We need to be concerned that God's mad at us as a nation because our nation is now preferring and promoting sexual immorality. Our government is now exporting this to other countries. And their big complaint right now against Uganda, why Uganda's in the news right now, is the Ugandan people don't want sexual immorality in their country. And the United States is telling Uganda, you're not going to get any more foreign aid if you don't allow it. And they said, then cut us off. So I, I applaud Uganda. Okay, the other countries are, 
are crawfishing and bowing their knee to America because we got the money. It's called the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Ma'am? Right, and that's borrowed too. So now I just I just I just got a number for you. In in uh five years, if nothing else is spent, in five years, our interest on the debt will be will be bigger than the defense budget. So what's gonna happen? We're gonna have to cut back on defense at a time when everybody wants to kill us. So if China started invading from the Gulf of Mexico, would we be able to defeat them? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe not. We'd like to think we'll win every battle. But God has been with this country for years. But we're we're promoting sexual immorality. And look how the Bible describes it. It's not my words, beloved. It's the word of the living God. Look what it says. Um, verse uh, 24 it says, it, he gave them over to, into the lust of their hearts to what? Impurity, so that their bodies would be what? Dishonored. Look at the language. Um, 26, this reason God gave them over to what? Degrading passions for women exchange the natural function of that which is unnatural. Uh, verse 27, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire one to another, men with men, committing what? Indecent acts and then receiving in their own persons, receiving in their bodies, what? The due penalty of their error. They get sick. And he calls it an error. Is that what the Bible calls it? Okay. Then, then, and at the end of 28, they're going to do those things that are not what? Proper. And, and, and then in verse 32, he says, although they know the ordinance of God, those who practice such things are worthy of death. This is the New Testament after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the grace and mercy of Jesus is on the earth now. This is the language that the apostle Paul put. Now people ask me all the time, they say, do you want to kill people that, that are perverted. I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to kill anybody. But you got to understand something. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to people. Hell is infinitely worse than death. And let's let them all live and flourish and prosper. They're going to die and go to hell if they don't repent. But here's what I want to tell all my conservative friends. My conservative, patriotic, Fox News watching conservatives that aren't saved are going to go to the same hell as the sexually immoral people go. Conservatism, patriotism doesn't save you. It doesn't wash a single sin away. I'm patriotic. I'm conservative. I'm probably more conservative than most people. You'll never know it, hopefully, from this pulpit because I'm not going to talk about it. It's nobody's business. What's, what's people's business from this pulpit is the Word of God. I, I am not a political activist. I'm a herolder of the gospel. I just told the school board that the other day when I was down there to protest sexual perversion in bathrooms in public schools. That's immoral, it's it's insidious, it's stupid, and it won't work. It's it's unnatural. And I said that, but I also said I'm not a political activist. I'm a heralder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who I am. But you've got to understand this is not just some theoretical uh, talk about theology of how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. When you see sexual immorality, it's all this sexual immorality has been around since right after the garden. 
That's when it started. Prostitution, homosexuality, incest, um, all these things were uh, uh, going on way before Jesus was ever born. Way before Paul the Apostle was ever born. Way before the New Testament was written. So in Leviticus 18, God gave what is called the Holiness Code. And he lists specifically, you will not lay with your father's wife. You will not lay with your sister. You will not lay a man with a man. You will not lay, I am the Lord. It is an abomination. You will not lay with an animal. You will not. And then he said, all of the people of the nation you're coming out of, Egypt, and all of the people of the place you're going to, Canaan, do those things. And that's why I'm driving them out. You say, golly, what did they do that was so bad that God drove them out and replaced them with a bunch of sinful Jews? Evidently, God doesn't like sexual immorality a lot. Sexual immorality is different than any other kind of sin. It's different. The Bible says it's different. Every other sin is without the body. Sexual immorality is within the body. Because the woman that you're having relations with, you just made a covenant with her. You just made a covenant with her and everybody else she's been with. That's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not. You're doing that. That's why it's wrong. It dishonors God. It tells a lie about the relationship between Jesus and his church. And so when you see all this going on, you know that God has abandoned a city, a people, a nation, and so what we need to be doing instead of trying to vote for the right guy in office, we need to be repenting. We need to be bearing our, shaving our heads and, and crying out in sackcloth and ashes that God would, would spare us because other than that, we're doomed. We've got an economic Armageddon coming that, that it's going to destroy everything you've ever known. And then we've got people around the world that's now they've got big guns too and they're, they hate us. So. Yeah, yeah, he did. And then God told the Jew, if you start doing what they did, I'm going to kill you too. I'll destroy you too. So it isn't that he, he prefers people above other people, no matter what the other people do. No, he wants his people to act like his people. So you say you're saved. Great. I believe you. I'm easy. Tell me you're saved. I'll believe you all day long. Then act like you're saved. Act like you're saved. Don't act like you're lost. Right? Amen to that. I'm sorry. Go ahead and read. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Right. Now, I asked some people the other day, they were invited to a so-called homosexual marriage. Now, I don't believe in homosexual marriage. It's a contradiction of terms. God has already defined marriage between one man and one woman. So it's not a marriage, but they were invited and they were talking to me and they said, 
are you going to go? I said, I'm not going. And they said, well, we're going to go. We want to show support. I said, support for what? Their sinful lifestyle? No, we just want to support them. We're not saying what they're doing is okay. I said, that's exactly what you're doing. The Bible says you're giving hearty approval to those who practice them. That's what you're doing. Yeah, but if we don't go, they're going to think we're better than they are. We don't like them. Why don't you call them to repentance if you care about them? I mean, stupid me, you know, you know, church, Christianity, the Bible, Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, stuff like that. It's good on Tuesday just like it is on Sunday, right? Yeah, it is. So now this is a long passage. I understand that there's a lot of stuff in this. It would be even longer if I went all the way to chapter 3, verse 18, which is the, the thought that Paul had, all one thought from 1, 18 to 3, 18. So I'm not going to do that to you because we'll get lost in all the details. But this is a big thought, and uh, on page 2 in the middle, I've divided it into four sections. Verses 18 and 19 is the first section. Verses 20 through 24 is the second section. Verses 25 through 27 is the third. And then verses 28 to the end is the fourth section. Now, why did I divide it like that? That's the best way I knew how to divide it. There's nothing supernatural about my division here. It could be not as good as somebody else's division. All right. So what we're doing now and what we've been in for several weeks is the first section, Romans 1, 18 and 19. And from those two verses, um, Brother, Brother Danny, you feel like reading? Okay, if you would read at the bottom of page 2, Romans 1, 18 and 19. you got to get a mic because uh, people are listening on the internet. Romans 1, 18 and 19, at the bottom of page 2. There you go. All right, here we go. Romans 1, 18 and 19. 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. All right, there's the passage that Brother Danny just read. Now, I've got, I've got several questions that I've asked in response to those Two verses, i got four questions. Number one, what is the wrath of God? Number two, how is God's wrath against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness? In other words, what does that look like? Number three, how do men suppress the truth in unrighteousness? And number four, what does verse 19 teach us? And so at the top of page three, we're going over what is the wrath of God. And over the weeks, we have found out on page top of page four, we have taught that wrath is also indignation, wrath is also retribution, wrath is also anger, and wrath is also vengeance. These are words that the Bible uses to talk about God's wrath. And look at anger. Anger comes from a Hebrew word that has to do with the flaring of the nostrils of the nose. So when the nostrils start flaring, you know somebody's mad. Now you can see that if you've ever dealt with animals. You're dealing with a dog. That dog was looking at you right in the eyes, and it's, he won't touch you until his nostrils flare. Then he's going to come at you. That's when you know he's going to attack you. You can always stop him. There's other animals that's like that. People are like that. They might be talking calmly to you. They're thinking about punching you in the nose, and as soon as they do, their eyes change and their nose changes. Almost always. Now, if people are trained, they, they won't, you won't see that. But almost always, you know when to duck. 
And, and that's just part of humanity. So the, the word anger in the Bible has to do with God's flaring of his nostrils. That means he's angry. He's mad. And then I'm gone over several things at the bottom of page four. God's wrath is just. So we have to go further than just simply believing that God has wrath. That that's a fact of God. That's a clinical fact of God. No, we've got to go to the point where we believe it's correct for God to have wrath. Uh, at the bottom of page 5, God's wrath shows that God is serious about sin. The middle of page 6, God's wrath is to be feared. And what did we learn about the fear of God? We learned two things about the lost has no fear of God, and the, the saved are the ones that have the fear of God. So the only people on earth that are terrified of hell are the people who won't go there. Because the lost person has no concern for hell. Number one, he doesn't really believe he's going. And number two, if God is good, then he, surely God wouldn't do that. So they really don't think they're that bad that God would throw them into hell. Uh, the last third of page seven, God's wrath is consistent in both the Old and the New Testaments. And then at the bottom of page eight, God's wrath is his love in action against sin. Now, that's a harder sell. That, that requires a little bit of explanation. So here's what I tried to do at the bottom of page 8. Whereas, I did it in a legal form. Whereas, God is love and does all things for his own glory. Whereas, God loves his glory above all things. And whereas God rules the world in such a way that brings himself maximum glory, therefore, God must, top of page 9, God must act justly and judge all sin by responding with wrath. And if he didn't do that, God would cease to be God. Another way of understanding this, if God didn't judge all sin, God would be agreeing with us that his righteous glory was not worth defending. So underneath it all, it is God's love for his own glory that motivates or produces or manifests his wrath against sin. It is true that God's love for his own glory is a very sobering reality. But even though God's love for his own glory thrills the soul of the redeemed, it is not good news at all for unrepentant sinners. In fact, it is the worst news they could ever get that God loves his own glory because they know they have sinned and fallen short of that glory. You see? And that's why Hebrews 10 and 31 says what, Sister Terry? It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, you got a God who is love, who is love personified. It is he, Nobody loves like God. The love of a mother and her child is not even the same universe as the love that God has. And yet it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Why would it be terrifying to fall into the hands of, of a God who is love? Because we're sinners, we're doomed to hell, and God is the one that sends us there. Right, right. Right, because instinctively we know we're not right with God. Yeah. Yeah. This is why when an angel appeared before people, the first thing they did was they were terrified. And the angel had to say, fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. Everybody thought 
the angel had come to kill me because I know I'm the sinner. Okay, and the angel most of the time didn't come to kill them. He came to give them a message, right? Then E is God's wrath defends God's glory. That is what defends God's glory. Now, let me see if I can, if I've got this down in a couple of pages. Hang on. Hang on, don't panic. Because I know I wrote it somewhere. Okay, yeah. All right. It's going to be a little while, but I'm going to define this. Let me, let me just cut to the chase. When we talk that God is holy, what do we mean by that? Set apart. Set apart. Keep going. Different than anything different. you made. Set apart. Different. Keep going. Righteous. That's part of his holiness. He's other. The one and only. He's a one of a kind. Nobody's like God. Okay, he's what we're not. All of that's true. That's what makes God to be holy. He's set apart. Now, another way of understanding God's holiness is holiness is the sum total of all of God's characteristics and attributes. So his immutability, his, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience, his, his uh, effectualness, his justice, his, his love, all of that put together is the holiness of God. Because all of those things put together is what makes God to be different from us. And so God is mysterious. God is other. We can't reach him. He's too high. We can't rise up to greet him because he's different from us. He can't be around sin. That's all I am is a sinner. Now, this is before Jesus came, I'm talking. And so the holiness of God is what made God distinct. All right, you got that. Now, a perversion of that true doctrine, truth, the, the truth of God's holiness was perverted by the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Sadducees and the, and the scribes and the zealots and all those other groups of the first century Jews. And when Jesus came, who was Jesus? God in flesh. God in flesh. So he's one with God in his substance or essence, but a separate person. Now, that's mysterious. I got you. And he went around Jerusalem and Galilee calling God Father. Now, in 21st century America, we call somebody our Father. That means kind of where we came from or who raised us or who married my mother. All right. Back in the first century, to call somebody Father meant you were of the same essence or the same substance as this guy. Which So when you have genealogies in the Bible, our English translations, I don't care what version you use about this, it's all the same. They'll say, so-and-so was the son of so-and-so. And you'll see the son of or the son is in italics. Now what that means is it wasn't in the original. What the original said was so-and-so of so-and-so. So-and-so of so-and-so. And it could be the son of, it could be the grandson, it could be the nephew, it could be the cousin. We don't know. It didn't tell us. 
And so you can't just take the genealogies and add them all together and get the age of the earth or the age of mankind because it doesn't work that way. So the point I'm trying to make is they, he was of this person. And usually if you had a famous person like Gideon, Gideon was, became famous. Okay, uh, Joshua became famous. Moses became famous. Abraham became famous. So if you were of Abraham, you were of the same substance, same essence. You're, you're like Abraham. And so same thing's true about bad people. You had a gangster, a murderer. He is of him. You got to watch him then because he's of him. He's got his same hot-headedness. He's got his same whatever. Okay, works both ways, see. The point I'm trying to make is God, Jesus walked around calling God Father, not Moses, not Abraham, God. Now, we don't really pick this up in our age because it's not uncommon for us all to call God Father. Right? In fact, Jesus told us to call God Father. Right? I'm not deity. I ain't never going to be deity. Yet he told me to pray our father. Okay. Now, so we're, he's our father in the sense that he's a fatherly over us all and that we are underneath him like children. Okay. But when Jesus called God father, the Jews of the first century understood exactly what he meant by that. And that's why they tried to kill him as soon as he said that. Because he made himself equal with God. That's what he was doing by saying Father. And he did it on purpose. He did it all the time. He did it in front of the people. He did it when he's by himself. He just did because he's just that it's it's correct. He is he is his father. Now, but he's not the father in that he married Mary and Mary had a baby. That's not how this worked. The, the Holy Spirit caused Mary to become pregnant without the natural way that women become pregnant. So it was a mysterious thing. The point I'm making is that there's a whole lot about God that we don't grasp, that he's, he's bigger and higher and better and just out of our league. That's the correct way to look at God, okay, which is why we worship him. The element of mystery, the element of not knowing, the element of not quite understanding everything is what precipitates our worship. We worship what is bigger than us, what is better than us, what is smarter than us, which is wiser than us, which is more important than us. That's who we worship. If God's on our same level, why worshiping? Right? He'd be our buddy, our homeboy, or our, 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 a mate, but he wouldn't be God. And so for decades, centuries, 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 God was other than. He was distant. In fact, it was a sin to try to make God like people in writings or in pictures or anything. Anybody that tried to devalue God and to make him just like a human was blasphemy. All right, now here comes Jesus, who was God in flesh, calling God Father. Now the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy is there. Now God is with us. He's no longer distant. He's with us. And then in, in, in addition to Jesus being with us, now the Holy Spirit is with us and in us, right? right? 
All these are new covenant things. The old covenant didn't have anything like this. And so this was radical theology in the first century. It's not radical to us because it's all we've ever known. As soon as we've been little, we raise in church and we go to church and we hear the New Testament preached and we understand all this stuff. But back when this was happening with Jesus walking on the earth, this was all new to these guys. So you have to, you have to, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. You, you got to understand how radical this was to a Jew that had been taught all his life, God is not like you. Now God is like you. Well, you don't need to sacrifice animals. Well, Moses told me to. I mean, everything's changing now. It was. What Jesus, when Jesus came, everything changed. Everything changed. We hear phrases like when we take the Lord's table. Do this in remembrance of me. Not do this in remembrance of the death angel in, with Moses in the Old Testament. No. Do this in remembrance of Jesus. Not the death angel. That was a sign and a symbol of what was coming. Now we have what was coming. We don't need the sign anymore. Why do you need a, a symbol if you got the reality? Right? Now you need to know about the symbol. You need to appreciate the symbol. But that's all it ever will be is a symbol. Years ago, there was a group of Christians. They said they were Christians. And they're over in Hancock County. And they were rebuilding an, uh, a duplicate of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And they were praying around it. And they started 24-hour prayer. You remember this? Okay, I'm not making this up. And they started prophesying. Yes, sir. And they called me and they said, are you coming? I said, y'all are embarrassing me. You're shaming Jesus. Why would I want a tabernacle in the wilderness when I've got the incarnate Christ in my heart? Why are you belittling Jesus? Well, we're not belittling Jesus. We're just, we're just, I said, you're just what? Going down the mountain back into the Old Testament before they had Jesus. Is Jesus not better than the tabernacle? Well, yeah, but it knows no but. Y'all are dishonoring Christianity. This is what Jews do, not Christians. Jews don't believe in Jesus. Remember? Well, that's not okay. And y'all are doing that. And they just, well, I'm going to tell you what. They didn't invite me to Christmas dinner. What? They had a shofar. Right. They blew the shofar, the ram's horn. Absolutely. They had all that Old Testament stuff going on. I'm surprised they didn't speak in Hebrew. And it's all, it, it, it's, a, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of how infinitely superior what we have now is. So you, periodically, this, this, this other groups start doing the same thing. I got an invite in the door. This past week, there's a church on Dito Road, and they're studying Hebrew now. They want me to come and join them. We want you to be a part of this, Brother Blair. I said, why are y'all studying Hebrew? Well, that's God's language. And I said, so y'all going to learn that Jesus' name is Yeshua Yamashia, and you're going to learn that Mary's name was Miriam, and you're going to learn that, that John's name was, uh, I can't hardly pronounce that, Joachim, and that Peter's name was uh, was Simon, 
And after you get through with all those Hebrew things, then what? Then what? Well, we're going to start taking the Passover. I said, you're not going to take the Lord's table anymore. You're going to take the Passover. Right. I said, well, you're converting to Judaism. You're leaving Christianity and going in, down the mountain back into Judaism. And they just, they said, well, golly, Brother Blair, why don't you just try it out? I said, I, I don't, I know what his name is. I pray to him. He's in my heart. He lives within me. He, the Holy Spirit's in me. What, what is Hebrew going to give me? And I get these King James only people and they want to argue, 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 argue. The King James is the only true verse. I said, what truth in the Bible am I missing? The deity of Christ, justification by faith alone, uh, uh, all these doctrines that the Bible talks about. Which one am I not getting by not having the King James? They don't even know what I'm talking about. So having, having a King James is better than knowing what it says? <laughs> yeah, yay verily. Right. I mean, it gets to be silly after a while. So, I don't care if you use the King James. It's a good translation. It's not the best. It's not the best. I'm going to show you this morning in my sermon how it's, they messed up on a, on a passage. And they didn't do it because they were terrible. They did it because they're human. So God's wrath stands as a sentinel to defend God's glory, which is offended because of my sin. That's how you have to understand that. Bottom page nine, the knowledge of God's wrath encourages saved people to modify their behavior. You reckon? So part of what it means to be lost is that they do not fear God. Brother Vern, look at Romans 3, 9 through 19, please. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. But we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written... There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Look at verse... Um... 11, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. You see that? Now this is talking about lost people. In their lost condition, lost people do not seek from seek for God. Now we say that all the time. Well, he's seeking after God. He said, see, I believe Brother Danny's seeking after God. That's because the hand of God is drawing him. So it's not him that's initiating the, the seeking, it's God drawing him. You see, that's how you're supposed to understand that. Because lost people don't care about God. They only like God when they're in a jam and they want God to get them out of the jam. Then they're all about Jesus, right? So we had a whole bunch of prisoners from the Harrison County Jail here when we were expanding this, this uh, sanctuary. 
And they came to church every time the doors were open. They were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. I mean, just like clockwork. And the reason they were here is not because they were all saved. It's because I had to sign the piece of paper for their superior to tell them that they were in church rather than at the bar room. And so I signed it. And when I signed that last thing, they, the FBI couldn't find them. They went out and that was the end of it. Now I found one of them the other day in a, in a, in a Walmart over in Diabraville. And he said, Brother Blair. And I turned around and I don't remember his name, but he's in a wheelchair now. And bless his heart. He said, man, I, man, I remember you. I remember the church. I said, why don't you come? He said, yeah, I need to do that. Yeah, you do. And I said, did anybody treat you bad? Oh, no, 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 no. That's the best time of my life. So, right. Did somebody run you off? No, 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 no. I said, why aren't you coming? Well, I said, because you don't want to. See, ultimately, that's the issue. They don't want to. Why did you do that bad thing? Because I wanted to. Why do you do that good thing? Because I want to. Why did you marry Rhonda? Because I wanted to. Why do you want a green truck? Because I want one. All right, you want to, that's the problem, right? And that's what is fallen when you're lost. And then that's what the new birth does. It gives you a better want to. And so now you want to go to church. You want to read the Bible. You want to serve. You want to be around other people that's reading their Bible and praying and going to church, right? I don't want to go to hell. I fear the Lord. Why do I fear the Lord? Because all of his wrath has been turned away from me forever. Now that just doesn't make any sense. You, you started fearing God when all of God's wrath was turned away from you. Yes. Because until God's wrath was turned away from me in salvation, I didn't know what the Bible said about the wrath of God. And it's bad. It's real bad. And it terrifies me. And I've said this to y'all before. When On that day, when God comes to judge the world, it's going to be like you see those people climbing up a mountain and they got this little thing coming out of the mountain and they're all up underneath there with their little tents. And right outside there is a 200-mile-an-hour hurricane. And anybody that sticks their hand out, I mean, the hand gets taken off. I mean, it's just awful out there. But underneath this crag of the rock, they're safe, right? We're going to be safe when God comes to judge the world. But we're going to behold the judgment of the wicked. And it's going to be like, and it's going to be terrifying. Because the only reason I'm not out there being judged is because God decided to save me. That's it. Other than I'd be right in the middle of it. The night I got saved, I was trying as hard as anybody's ever tried in their life to sin. And I walked away from there born again. How did that happen to me? You said, well, you chose. I didn't choose squat. I was choosing getting drunk. I was choosing to sin. I was choosing, trying to find which girl I was going to be with. And God saved me in the middle of all my wicked choosing. So he saved me in spite of my choosing, not because of it. Now, you can slice that and dice that any way you want to. The old Negro spiritual said, something got a hold of me. That's good enough explanation for me. Another way to understand it is God violated the stew out of my will. Other than that, I never would have got saved. Because you know why? I didn't want to get saved. I wanted to sin. 
And all of a sudden, he changed my want to. I didn't say, Lord, would you please change my want to? And if the truth is known, I probably was thinking, why don't you leave me alone so I can go sin? And in some cases, he's going to leave them alone. So the, he doesn't violate everybody's will. He only violates the will of the people he's going to save. So thank God that he changed your course. Thank God he stood in the way. There's examples all in the Old Testament. A prophet wanted to go do something. There's an angel standing in his way. There's something happened, right? Something changed everything. So you can go back. That's right. So you can go back and look. If three things would have been different in my life, I'd still be lost today. It's not a lot. But God moved at those particular times in my life to change my course, of, of my, my eternal course. And here, 52 years later, I'm still teaching God's Word like I was two weeks after I got saved. I hope I'm teaching it a little bit better than I was back then. All right, so the fear of God is best understood not as being scared to death of God, but as a reverential respect of God. But the saved do fear God, and they fear hell, and they fear judgment. So the irony of this is that the only people who fear God in eternal damnation are the ones who will never be judged by God. Because the saved love God. They want no part of his judgment. That's why that passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that we read in our, our, the Lord's table every, every Lord's day, God did this so that we could judge ourselves so that we would not be condemned along with the world. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So when you do something that's worthy of death and you don't die, what, what is that? Some people say, well, God didn't see it. He sees everything, so that's not the answer. So what's the answer? Why didn't God kill you? As soon, huh? But to what end? In other words, he's giving you space to repent. And if you take him up on that and you repent, good for you. If you don't and you use the, 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 the kindness of God as an excuse to sin more, your judgment will be infinitely worse. Amen to that. So he's not long-suffering because he's a sap. He's not long-suffering because he, he's like, Mama, I, I could get away with anything with my mother. She'd fuss more than my dad would fuss. My dad just wouldn't talk much. He'd just do it. And I'd be up against a wall somewhere. But Mama would just fuss, 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 fuss. And I just waited. She got through. Then I said, can I go do this? And she said, yeah, go ahead and do it. And, and mine was easy. So, you know, but my dad, uh -huh. and I, I said, can I? And he said, no, I didn't get it out yet. And I said, you don't even know what I'm going to ask you. He said, it's nine o'clock. You need to go to bed. The answer is no. But I don't, and then, and then he did this. He would go, that's N-O. Now he's done talking. But, and he'd go, now if you did it all together, I better hush. Because the next thing, the belt's coming off and I'm going through every room. All right? Because he, he quit talking a while back. Now that's how God is. There was a prophet in the Bible. He said, can I go? God said, no. Can I go? God said, no. Can I go? God said, no. Can I go? God said, go ahead and go. And then a lion came and killed him. And then everybody says, oh, that's mean God. That's mean. God's a meanie. 
You told him not to go four times. So be careful, not when God tells you no. Be careful when God says, yeah, go ahead and do it. Because he may be tired of dealing with you. So his mercy is, 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 is unreal. It's, it's greater than the sea. But there is a limit. There is a limit. He will not always strive with the flesh of man. Because the saved love God. That's why they fear these things. They want no part of his judgment. They only seek God's approval of all that they do. And so this reverential respect for God and his wrath empowers the saved to modify their behavior. I started for the, I don't know, the first 15 years of my marriage, I thought God wanted me to make Rhonda to be more like me. Because if you're only you're like me, then you're, you're fine, right? Obviously. And so I'm out trying to make Rhonda to be like me, and she can't compete. I can't compete with her. She can't compete with me. If you didn't know any better, you think God put two different people together on purpose. You say, well, opposites attract. That doesn't make any sense. Why don't you have people of commonality together? Why do they have to be opposite? Because God's trying to sanctify both of you. That's part of what happens in marriage, right? And so after, and I didn't have good teaching and I didn't have, my parents were not good examples and Rhonda's parents were not good examples for the most part. And so I had to figure this stuff out on my own basically. And so I went to the library and I read every book I could get my hands on about women because I didn't understand women. I didn't understand Rhonda. I mean, it was, why are you acting like this? I don't know. She didn't know either. She didn't understand Rhonda. And I said, Lord, have mercy. How am I supposed to live like this? And most of the books I read were terrible. But there wasn't no Christian bookstore. There wasn't no internet. And like I said, the church I went to, they didn't know. The pastor and his wife had a horrible marriage. So where am I supposed to go? And that's why, beloved, in church, you should not only hear the word of God preached and taught rightly, you should have real life examples of people that are doing it correctly so that people can say, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I mean. That's what that looks like. And that's what we have. And as small as we are, we have solid marriages in this church. It is a blessing from God, is it not? All right, now, but even God's wrath is satisfied in Jesus. Amen. Thank you for that. Amen. But even though all of this is true, in the very center of God's wrath, we find the ultimate good news. Sister Charlotte, look at 1 Timothy 1.15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. So Jesus came into the world to save bad people, evil people, wicked people, sinners, lawbreakers blasphemers, thieves, adulterers, uh, liars, uh, idol worshipers. You go through the Ten Commandments real quick in your head. That's what law breaking is. Okay, now that's who he came to save. So if you sit there and tell everybody, well, I'm, 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 I really try to be good. I don't think I'm that bad. I really am a good person in my heart. 
Now, I may have murdered three people, but uh, you know, down deep, I'm probably a good person. So I may have committed murder, but I'm not a murderer. I don't know who started that mess. That's just a lie. If you murder, you're a murderer. If you lie, you're a liar. If you steal, you're a thief. That's what that means. So what you do when somebody's like that, I was on the phone with somebody trying to, trying to bring them to Jesus. And the whole time I'm on the phone with them, they're telling me how good they are. They do this for the Red Cross. They do this for their neighbor. They do this. They do that. They do this. Finally, I said, look, Jesus didn't die for you. He said, what? I said, no, Jesus didn't die for you. He died for me because I'm a sinner. You keep telling me how good you are. So he didn't die for you. He came to call sinners to repentance, right? right. So you got the first thing you got to do is humble yourself and you got to admit, I am a lost, wicked sinner deserving of hell. I've earned hell. And this is what I'm telling you right now. When you stand before God and God says, why should I let you into heaven? You better not tell him, well, I did this and I did that and I did this and I did that. That are good things. Because however good you did them, they're not good enough. Well, I really tried hard. Doesn't matter how hard you tried. You're not perfect. That's what God's looking at. Sinless perfection. Okay, so you go to God in humility, always, even now in prayer, but especially on that day when you stand before him, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? The answer is, you shouldn't let me in. I don't belong in heaven. I have nothing to do with heaven and you. I'm totally of earth. I'm totally sinful. I'm, I'm, I'm sold under sin. There's no good thing in me that is in my flesh. But that man right over there that hung on a cross and lived and died and rose again, he told me that I could come. That's it. That's the only reason I get to go. And he told me to come because I trusted in him. I don't believe he's a liar. And I believe that he lived and died and rose again to pardon all of my sin and take all of your wrath that was against me on himself. I believe that and therefore I get to come in because of him, not anything I've done. Right? That's how you have to talk. And that's how you have to go to God now in prayer. And you don't have to just say, Lord, and, and rehash all the sins you committed. That's not the point. But you say, God, the only reason I'm coming to you, the only reason you're listening to me right now is because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus and I'm draped over with his righteousness. Other than that, you wouldn't hear a word I'm saying. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Right? right. And that honors Jesus, you see. If I'm talking about all the good stuff I've done, I'm honoring myself. I'm robbing Jesus of his glory and I'm giving it to myself. Danny, look at Romans 3, 24 through 26 at the bottom, bottom page 10. It's okay. Romans 3, 24 through 26. Give, give that man a mic. He's got one. Page right, Romans 3, 24 to 26. There you go, brother. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at that present time, 
at the present time, excuse me, so that he would be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thank now, you. that right there is one of the deepest, most profound statements in the whole Bible. This is what changed my life. This statement right here, this is what, that's what caused me to be what I am right now, whatever I am right now. People say, are you reformed? I said, well, I'm not through. I'm reforming. I'm becoming biblical. I'm loving Jesus more. I'm following Jesus closer. I'm obeying him with more joy than I used to, or whatever you call that. But the, the point that, that I'm making by bringing it in here, because God's wrath is satisfied in Jesus Christ, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I'm not justified because of all the good things I've done. I'm justified by, as a gift by his grace. What's the difference in grace and mercy? Grace is a gift that you don't deserve. And mercy is um, God's decision on, on Him giving you mercy. And, uh... <laughs> okay. All right. Now, grace, use a football metaphor. Grace is offense. Mercy is defense. Grace is giving you something you don't deserve. Mercy is keeping back what you do deserve. Okay? So mercy keeps the wrath of God away from me. I deserve the wrath of God. I'm entitled to the wrath of God. I've earned the wrath of God. But God's mercy keeps it away from me. Okay? But now, if to, in order to be saved, I have to have something that I don't have. I have to have a new nature. I have to have eyes that see. I have to have ears that hear. I have to have a, a heart of flesh rather than a stony heart. I have to have my want to changed. So God has to do something for me proactively. He has to offensively do something for me or else I can't be saved because I don't have a love for God already in my heart. I hear people all the time, well, I've loved God my whole life. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You didn't love him enough. You had some type of an affection for him, maybe, because you were you heard something, you raised in church, whatever, but you don't you lost people can't love God. They cannot love God. We love God because he first loved us. That's what the Bible teaches. So the, the my love for God is a gift from God. So I have to be given the love of God as a gift. All right. Now, so I God has to interrupt my plans. Let's use Abraham as an example. Abraham's over there. It's a normal Thursday, and he's worshiping a totem pole. And he's sacrificing something animal to the totem pole, and he's offering it fruit and vegetables and everything else. And all of a sudden, God says, Abraham, Abram, get up and go to another country. Okay. Took him a while. Finally, he got there. And 14 years later, God speaks to him again. And then sometime later, God speaks to him again. And it's very general, very vague, very, very distant. And then God said, no, 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 no. 
out of your old wife, I'm going to give you a son. And that's who I'm going to bless. And the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. And then and there's other things that God did with Abraham. The point I'm trying to make to you and then he said in chapter 18, I'm going to, 17, I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. I'm going to do this with you, and I'm going to do this with you, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. God never asked him, do you want to do this? God didn't say, I've got a good idea. Would you like to come on board? I've got some suggestions, Abram. Would you like to participate? No. He said, I'm going to do this, and you're going to do that. And I'm going to change. What if God, What if he didn't want to change his name? What if he wanted a daughter? Too bad. God didn't tell him. He said, I'm going to give you a son. And I'm going to tell you what to name him. You're not going to name him Abraham Jr. You're going to name him Isaac. Okay. The point I'm making is that if, what, what, do you, what do you want to call that? I call it violating the stew out of his will. I call it God interrupting all of his plans inserting himself into Abram's life when Abram didn't ask him to insert himself. Abram said, please God, insert yourself into my life. He was worshiping false idols. He was lost. He didn't love God. He didn't know God. And in his worst condition, when he was guilty sinner, that's when God came to him. Not when he cleaned his act up. And so that's what God does to you and me. And that's what happened to me on that Friday night June the 25th, 1971. I'm trying to sin. I just don't want people to see me. I'm trying to do it in the darkness behind the stadium. And all the lights were on and, and where, where we usually drank beer because I was underage was all lit up. We couldn't drink beer in our spot. We'd get caught. And then, go, then I'm going to get in trouble. My dad's going to find out. And I'm scared death of my dad. So I had to wait. And in waiting... The verse, I turned aside to see this great sight. I didn't see a bush burning and not consumed. I saw lights on at the stadium. And what is going on in there that I need to go see? And I went in just as wicked as I could be, trying to be more wicked as I walked in there, looking and finding girls. And I got saved. Now, what do you call that? I want my, everybody said I was going to be a lawyer. My whole, I had Harvard paid for. My grandfather paid for it. And I ended up going to Jeff Davis Junior College. Ended up living with rats. I, what, was that not a violation of my will? Now, you could say it another way. God just changed my will and made me willing. Okay, fine. But in him changing my will, I didn't ask him to do that. I didn't have anything in me to ask for that. I was lost. I was dead in trespasses and sins. So he came to me. He found me. I didn't find him. He wasn't lost. He searched for me. He changed me. All this was his doing, right? We are saved by his doing, not our own. I didn't pray a prayer. I didn't walked the aisle, I didn't I didn't sign a card, I didn't raise my hand, I got born again. I didn't even know what it was called. I didn't even know John three sixteen. 
And I legitimately thought the book of Genesis was about the birth of Jesus and the book of Revelation was the crucifixion. That's what I thought. That's how stupid I was about the Bible. I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know anything. And so the first book I ever read in the Bible was Revelation. And I said, whoa, wow, I better read something else. Somebody said, read John, brother. I said, okay. So I read the gospel of John and then. And then I began to understand. How did I begin to understand the Bible? And I went to mama. I went to mama first. First one I ever went to was mom. I said, mama, I'm saved. Her response, oh my God, a religious fanatic. And I couldn't, why aren't they happy? Why aren't people happy that I'm saved? Everybody was criticizing me, telling me I was doing it wrong. I didn't do it this way. You got to do it that way. You can't do this. You can't do that. And here I am trying with all my heart just to serve the Lord. I didn't know what I was doing, but they didn't either. And and I call it the violation of my will. I call it God inserting himself into my life sovereignly. Another phrase you can use, he pushed his weight around. God God said, you're not going to do that, you're going to do this. And I just said, okay. I mean, threw away all my inheritance, threw away all the college paid for, and I said, yeah, I'll go, I'll go that way. Why? Because he changed me. See, see what I'm saying? And that's, that's what, that's what this is about. That's, and so you, you, you it's not that I'm going to clean my act up and I'm going to take communion three times a week and that's going to what saved me. No, it's not. I, communion can't forgive a single sin. Baptism cannot forgive a single sin. You do these things because you're already saved. You do them in response, a loving response to already being saved. And so these two verses, that these three verses that Brother Danny just read, I began to look at this because in the, at the end of verse 25, this was to demonstrate His righteousness. I never would have thought it would have said that. This was to demonstrate his mercy. This was to demonstrate his love. This was to demonstrate his kindness. His righteousness? That's kind of out of place to me. And then in verse 26, he says it again. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. Why did he say that? Because people 2,000 years ago didn't get it. Paul had to repeat himself 2,000 years ago. Well, we're all about grace and love and mercy. No, God's about righteousness. Grace, mercy, and love is a tool that brings us into righteousness. But the goal of salvation is righteousness. You say, well, I'm saved by grace. Fine, great, praise God. To what end? So I can go to heaven. Well, so it's all about you. What does God get out of it? No, salvation is about righteousness. So God saved me because he loved me so that by saving me, I will love him. And a wicked sinner saved by nothing else but what he did for me now desires to please him in all that I do. That glorifies God. That glorifies him better than a, than a supernova. It glorifies him better than building a mountain. Wicked sinners loving Jesus and following him joyfully because of what God did for them, pleases God more than anything else. And that's why there's so much in the Bible 
about God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We do uphold your grace and your mercy and your love because without that, nothing starts, nothing nothing begins. But Lord, the goal of salvation is righteousness. That a wicked sinner like me could have the righteousness of Jesus Christ draped over me and that you could call me righteous. Oh God, thank you for this, this mystery, this wonder, this beautiful thing. Help us now to appreciate all that you are and all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord.